Earlier today in Washington, D.C., another career politician said something really, really stupid. Officials are concerned that ignorance and stupidity has blatantly crossed party lines and unfortunately has made its way to those appointed by elected officials as well. You don't say. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. You have just entered Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog with common sense logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, U.S. Navy veteran, author of the book, Progress, Really? And your freedom-loving host, Peter Seraphine. Welcome to Liberty Lighthouse. I am the keeper of the Liberty Lighthouse, your beacon of common sense, your wiki, if you will, Peter Seraphine. I urge you to join this conversation by calling 64 My Rights, that's 646 974 4487, and go to liberty lighthouse.com, sign up to be a member. Now, let's start the show. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the history of conflict in the Middle East, and I have my neighbor and friend Jamil with me. Say hi, Jamil. Hi. Uh, Jamil was born and raised here in North America, but I. Uh, can't remember if it was one or both of his parents are Iraqi. My dad. Your dad is Iraqi. Um, so he hopefully has a little bit more of a cultural insight as to what's going on here. And if not, you know, it's still fun to talk with Jamil. Okay. <laughs> so trouble in the Middle East has been going on for literally centuries, um, starting with the Western influence of, of uh, the Crusades of the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, where Christians just won over and tried to convert or kill anybody who wasn't Christian. Then we have here in America, our first foray into the Middle East was probably the Barbary pirates. Uh, the moment that we declared independence from England, we no longer had the protection of the all-power British Navy. So the Barbary pirates of the north coast of Africa decided that we were fair game. And anybody who went into the uh, the southern side of the Mediterranean Sea there was was uh, extorted for tribute. They wanted money from anybody who came through, and the money went back to what's now Libya and Morocco. And, but back then it was Tunisia, and I forget. Anyway, so that led to a couple of wars in the uh, in the nineteenth century here in America, the early nineteenth century, and. We uh, got that under control, and we didn't really have a whole lot to do with the Middle East, not a whole lot of wars or fighting or anything, up until, uh, say, right about World War I. <laughs> so with World War I, um, of course, the whole world was involved, and the Ottoman Empire had ruled over the Middle Eastern area for about 600 years by that time, and Ottoman Empire went from the south and east of Europe and the north coast of Africa and all the way over into the what we now know as the Middle East, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq. And it was, it was a pretty big space. So for 600 years, the Ottoman Empire was one big, relatively cohesive group. They coexisted all nice and friendly and, and it was like a country. And then World War I. World War One was was absolutely the turning point between the Middle East and the rest of the world. It was absolutely the wedge driven 
between the Middle East and the rest of us. East and West. East and West. Okay. And the biggest part of that was the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Yes. Sykes-Picot Agreement from, uh, it was signed in 1916. Um, it was an agreement between the, the UK and France and basically carved up the Middle East into spheres of influence and colonies post-World War One. More or less. It was, it was somewhat more nuanced than that. It was pre-World War One, and the UK and France both wanted to exert influence in the Middle East, and they had agreed as to who got which region, with France getting Turkey, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and the UK taking what's Israel and Palestine today and Jordan and southern Iraq. Um, That would ultimately lead to the borders that we have today, but it wasn't so much a, a, a defined agreement. This is where the borders are going to be, but it would lead to that. It was a little more nuanced. But it was also signed uh, two years before the end of World War One. So the proud people of the Ottoman Empire that must have taken that as a slap in the face after the fact when they see what's going on. And it's like, wait a minute, you made this agreement two years before the war was even over? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, Russia was also part of that agreement. And, and, and Greece, Russia and Greece had both... Uh, Assented, I guess, would be the way they—they they didn't actually sign it, but they were like, "Oh yeah, it sounds good to me." Right. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I, I was about to interrupt, but go ahead. I Continue. forgot where I was. It's okay. Okay, so <laughs> before we start talking about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, before we start talking about World War One, one thing that is really important to remember: a difference between the Middle East and and America specifically is our frame of reference for what is considered recent. And in the Middle East, the Sykes-Picot Agreement is considered recent. Right, because they have 6,000 years of history, and Sykes-Picot was 100 years ago. We have 250 years of history, and so Sykes-Picot was like, you know, ancient to us. Right, that was, (laughs) was, you know, several centuries ago. (laughs) But in the Middle East, this is really fresh on the minds of a lot of Arabs. I mean, this is this is something that that everyone is knowledgeable of, everyone has their own opinions of, and they all have strong opinions of it. But it's absolutely a real-life thing, and it's something that we really don't think about here. No, not at all. I um, Like I often do, I write an article uh, prior to recording these podcasts, and I wrote a, a brief article... Uh, mostly about Sykes-Picot, and had several people say in comments like they had no idea. that They didn't know it existed, had nothing to do with it. Right. So, yeah, we don't get it. Um, I would like to point out that uh, the United States was not in part of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and it would be nice to hope that that was because of moral superiority and not wanting to carve up uh, a nation for our own personal games, but it's much more likely... That's because it was agreed to before the United States entered World War One, and we didn't have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak, when the agreement was made. Also, I don't know that 
America was really considered a giant power on the world stage at that time. Not until and, after the war. <laughs> and we were across the Atlantic, so it wasn't like we were in the neighborhood. Sure. You mentioned uh, that this was signed several years before the end of the war, and, and it must have come as a surprise to the Ottoman Empire. It's worth stating that the Ottoman Empire, prior to World War One, in, in World War One, initially wanted a fight with the Allies. They wanted the protection of the Allies for their region, for their empire. Uh, the Ottoman Empire at that time was shrinking. It was losing its influence all over the world. It seemed doomed. And, and part of the reason for that, if we, we look at the Middle East today, we think of you know all the power and money that comes with the world's largest oil reserves. But at that time, the, the world's largest oil reserves hadn't been found yet. So the part of the problem of the Ottoman Empire, I would assume, was just lack of money. That's a whole different podcast. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to jump right in and, and start telling you what I think the history of the Middle East that leads to where we are today, um, where I think all that comes from. And obviously it starts with Sykes-Picot. More importantly, maybe more importantly than, than the agreement itself, is the Ottoman Empire did want to fight with the Allies ultimately ended up fighting with the German side because the Allies just simply didn't want the Ottoman Empire as an ally in this fight. They didn't see the Ottoman Empire as beneficial. That's a little insulting. Well, the Ottoman Empire, you got to understand, was waning at this time. Understood. And Western civilization was ready, was ready for it to fall and was ready to jump in, start colonizing where they could, start, you know, laying their hands in. So there really was no benefit to helping the Ottoman Empire at that point. It was just going to cost them. Right. Got it. So the the UK made an agreement um, prior to Sykes-Picot with the Arabs in the Middle East. And the Arabs had agreed to fight against the Ottoman Empire. And in exchange, the UK was going to grant them an Arabic homeland, which was roughly the size and shape of Syria. Um, Stop right there for a second. I don't understand all of the different groups in the Middle East terribly well. So when you say the Arabs were willing to fight against the Ottoman Empire, like what percentage of the population would you say that was? Like, I... I actually don't have an answer to that. But the Ottoman Empire was made up of of every possible imaginable group. It was made up of Christians. It was made up of Arabs. It was made up of Muslims. It was made up of Europeans. It was made up of Persians. It was, I mean, you know, it was it was a huge region, and it encompassed all of okay. all so, of the people within that region. So the Arabs were just a small part of it. Not a small part, but a, you know they were not all of it. Okay. So anyway, the Arabs had agreed to fight against the Ottoman Empire. And in exchange, they were going to get an Arabic homeland. Sykes-Picot Agreement negated that. So that's really the first time in modern history when the Arabs felt that the West had shafted them. 
little slap in the face. Right. And this was, you know, this was a hugely important thing for Arab society. Is it is it safe to say that the Arabs saw the end of the Ottoman Empire themselves and were trying to carve out a home? Certainly. Post Ottoman sure. Empire. Okay. All right. So that's World War One, Sykes Pico Agreement. War ends. France and England move in. Do their colonization and spheres of influence, and Russia and Greece, and, you know, they all take their chunks. It. Yeah that that leads to problematic borders that were drawn in the Middle East. The the problematic borders were most notable in Syria and Iraq, but it really was all of all of the region. Problematic how? There were natural borders. Uh, cultural borders. Cultural. Thank you. That's thank you. Um, there were cultural borders. Uh, the Kurds in northern Iraq today were part of a region known as Kurdistan, which is parts of Iran, parts of Iraq, parts of uh, yeah, parts of Syria. There were um, Sunnis, which who which made up a large portion of the central region of the Middle East, but like the tip of a spear just wedged into Iraq. And then there's the Shia, who made up, you know, Persia, southern Iraq. And these borders paid no mind to to the natural border, the cultural borders that existed. And in fact, a lot of people believe they were designed specifically to crew, to foment discord within these countries, which is known as the the Syriana or the Pax Syriana idea. Okay. Um, well, whether it was intentional or not, it certainly did promote discord because post Sykes Pico, there was I don't know, a dozen revolutions in the first twenty years or something like that. It was right. it and, was constant. And if you believe the historians, that was by design. That was okay. it was intended for that to happen. So that was a pretty it, crappy thing to do. It was I mean it's crappy on a humanistic level. It's probably smart business-wise. The the Western countries, most notably, it was the UK at this time. I'm not bashing on the UK, but it just was the UK at this right. time. You can bash on the UK. We kicked them out, you know, 1776. <laughs> right. They made a lot of money selling arms to different factions within the Middle East. They got their hands in a lot of pies in the Middle East simply by coming in and being the peacekeepers. Hmm. And that opened the door to a lot of things for them. So there's a lot of people who believe it was by design. I'm one of them. Um, and the people that don't think it's by design think it's just ignorance, and they drew the lines haphazardly right. because, you know, this looks like a good place to draw it. Right. Regardless of where you stand on whether or not it was intentional, it was still a bad idea. I would agree with that. All right, so Sykes-Pico, uh, we're post-World War I. Uh, agreement over France, England, Russia, Greece, move in, take their stakes. Revolution after revolution after revolution for roughly 20 years. And then we come to World War II. And again, the Middle East is part of it. The West is running in, you know, Rommel in northern Africa 
in the uh, the Muslim areas there, and in you know, instead of the Ottoman Empire as one big cohesive group that could potentially pledge allegiance to one side or the other, now you've got all these smaller countries and regions, and some pick one side and some pick the other. We have uh, instances where some Muslims, and I again, I don't understand the different groups within the Muslims. I don't understand the different groups between the Christians either, so don't take that as offensive in any way, anybody. Um, some of the groups in the Muslims would, would support the uh, Nazi side of the war, and some of them supported the Allied side of the war. And, I mean, we're talking an area that's not that big right. to have, well, basically infighting during a war. I mean, during a world war. Yeah, they're... they're... I think that what happened is the smaller groups, with you know, the smaller groups of Arabs or Muslims or whomever basically chose which side of the world war they wanted to be on based on what their enemy chose which side. So if my enemy chose that they're going to fight with the allies, then I'm going to pick that I'm going to I think that's fight. a fair statement. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's a fair statement in any war. <laughs> um, who, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm actually not very well versed in, in World War II Middle Eastern history. Um, I think that the problems today in the Middle East basically all stem from from the fall of the Ottoman Empire and external hands yeah. deciding the fate of the Middle East. And I, I, I think you see the problems today are a direct, are a direct result of that. You know, Iraq is never going to be stable. Because of the lines that were drawn. Right. And, right. There are always going to be Kurds in the north. There's always going to be Shias in the center and there's or in the south. And there's always going to be Sorry, Sunni. she is in the center and Sunni's in the south. It's it's always going to be a problem. These you take any concentrated group of extra religious people and you put them near each other and they're going to argue. Right. And when you have them all in the same country, you're not going to have a country that operates smoothly, especially when they all have parts of other countries trying to back them. Right. All right, so World War Two comes and goes. Obviously, the, Al the Allies win. Yay. Um, after World War II, we've got the creation of Israel. So the UK has a, was it a mandate over Palestine that expires in 1947, if I remember correctly. And I don't have my notes. Right right. So. so their mandate expires in 1947. And then this Jewish coalition decides that in 1948, they're going to claim what was then Palestine as their new Jewish home. Right. Okay. That sounds like a great place to take our first break. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come back after that. And we'll talk about just what maybe the creation of the forced creation of a new country in the Middle East may have done for conflict in the area. Now here's a word from our sponsors. Now, yeah, that, that's cute though. I don't do that. All right, so we'll be back in uh, about thirty seconds or so. Thanks for listening to Liberty Lighthouse. Be right back. Okay, so we're back. Okay. Thanks for listening to that 
30 second ad that's how we pay the bills around here that that penny or so that you just earned me thank you very much listeners um so we were where we left off we left off at uh the creation of israel where all of a sudden everyone lived happily ever after god that would be great wouldn't it again the west came in and forced a colony upon the area the west you're talking about i don't know you're talking about israelis right uh, the Okay. The, the Western world forced okay. forced upon the, the Middle East, Israel, um, as a independent state. And then the, the United States portion of that was that the moment, like literally the same day that Israel said, we're now an independent state, President Truman was like, hey, welcome aboard, and acknowledged them immediately. So that, you know, whether or not Israel or the Jewish people, the Israelis, deserve a home. I don't think... Of course they deserve a home. Right. Of course they do. Agreed. I don't think there's anybody that would argue that they don't... Well, that's not true, because there are people out there that just want Israelis dead, no matter what. No, Israel has a right to exist. The whole, you know, everything everything that Israel says it wants, it's absolutely entitled to have. The problem is, everything that the Palestinians say they want they also are entitled to have. Right. right. So, for some reason, the Western world decided to carve out this new Jewish state right there in Israel, which, of course, is the, the birthplace of Judaism and the birthplace of Christianity, but unfortunately for the world of conflict, also the birth, birthplace of... Uh, Islam. Yeah, Islam. Um, so, the three major world religions, three of the major world religions, all claim home in this one very small region of the world, and we in the West decided that we're going to make that an independent state. I don't think that was fair. I, I don't think we're going to... I really don't want to go down this path. Okay. Because we're not going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. What? And We can't do that sitting here in my library? I, <laughs> I mean, my belief has always been that you run Jerusalem like the Vatican. You just make it a city-state that's independent from all countries, and it's religious in nature. Separate from the rest of Israel. Separate from the rest of Earth. <laughs> yeah, like just, the Vatican, right smack in the middle of Rome. Right. But not Rome. Right. That's interesting thought. Well, it, it's not an original thought. Other people have had that thought, and, you know, you yeah. throw that at the wall and see what sticks, and it just doesn't. Right. No one wants that. All right, so neither of us are experts in Israeli oh, politics. Am. Oh, you are? Oh, I am. <laughs> I just don't want to go down that path. <laughs> oh, let me... I'm sorry. So so the Western world creates this state. It immediately causes conflict that as... I mean, if you, if you look it up online, it says the Israeli conflict began in 1948, which was the year that Israel was created, and it still has no end date. <laughs> well, I mean, this podcast <laughs> is about understanding understanding what's going on in the Middle East. That's understanding the, the history of it, understanding why we're at where we're at today. I don't think anyone is confused by what's happening in Israel. I don't think anyone doesn't understand why that's a problem. I don't... I, I, I mean, that's a it's a pretty black and white issue. It's, it's very easy to understand why either side is upset. I agree with that. So anyway, but that's just another portion of the conflict in the Middle East right. is the Israeli conflict. And then beyond that, after that, so we're 1948, we create Israel. 
And from there on out, this is where I really don't have a whole lot of information. I know the basic stuff. I know like the Iran-Iraq war where the, where the United States decided to be two-faced and openly support one side but supply guns to the other side. Yeah, well, there was, there was more to it than that. Okay. This uh, is why you're here. Okay. So the Iran-Iraq war, it, it, there is more to it than that. You're largely correct. You are, you're right on the money with, we were pitting both sides against each other. We were doing essentially what the UK was doing in the 1920s, which was we were, you know, fomenting discord. We, we wanted them to beat each other up. Um, but now, you know, in the 1920s, it was just for land. But now, you know, in the 1980s, now well, we're talking about the world's largest oil reserves. So there's even more reason for outside influences to, to want to fomate that discord. For, for what it's worth. Oil was discovered in Iran in 1908. Right. And but we didn't realize how much oil oh, for quite a while. We had a pretty good idea. Uh, British Petroleum, which at that time was known as the Iranian Anglo Oil Company, as soon as they discovered oil in 1908, immediately lobbied for Iran to become a British protectorate, to become a colony. Yeah. They wanted that oil from day one. And in fact, almost all of the problems of Iran through the 60s had to do specifically with oil. Okay. Um, we were talking about the Iran-Iraq war. And that led... Okay. Let me talk about Iran for just a second. Okay. Okay. So, Iran, between the 20s and World War II was maybe the most modern, most cosmopolitan, most advanced country in the Middle East. It was, there was a strong man named uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi, who, who was the ruler, and he was very pro-West. He wanted... You were required to wear a hat. If you were a man, you were required to wear a hat with a brim. Hijabs were illegal. There were no... Mosques were required to have chairs. He wanted everything to be as Western as possible. There were telephones. There were radios. There were... It, it was a modern country by by those standards. And all of the Muslims in Iran just went right along with those ideas, right? Um, he pissed off a lot of Muslims. He pissed off quite a few. He There were uprisings that he had to quell. Um, but he wanted a secular state and the West was fine with Iran being a secular state and Iran for the most part was also fine being a secular state. It was his direct attacks against Islam that, that pissed off the hardliners in the country. Um, all of that would have been fine. All of that, I believe that Iran could have survived and would look something like a Western country today. If it weren't for oil, in again the Anglo-Iranian oil company, um, in 1941, the Shah ceded power to his son. He abdicated, and his son uh, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi uh, took over, and he was basically an asshole. Can I say asshole on your show? I think I can. No, I can bleep it if I don't okay. like it. 
Um, he was in it for himself. He wanted to be rich and he wanted to be powerful and he didn't really care so much about the people and he wanted to let the parliament run the country, which is, which is largely what happened. Um, and one of the things he did was he sold off the oil rights. He sold off the mineral rights to Iran, to, to the Brits. And now, before you continue, that also happened in multiple other uh, Middle Eastern countries, selling off oil rights. Uh, Saudi Arabia sold off chunks of oil rights, and right again, Western influence. They're selling off rights, making themselves rich, not right. necessarily helping the. The problem people. in Iran was that the money didn't go to Iran; it went to the Shah. It yeah. went specifically to him, and. At this time, Iran couldn't really afford the lifestyle that it had built and needed the oil revenue. Uh, since that was going in his pocket, that was largely pissing off the people. Enter a guy named Mossadegh, who was the prime minister, um, the leader of the Iranian parliament. Western-educated, pro-Western, um, largely wanted to nationalize the, the oil the um, oil reserves. He said, this belongs to Iran. It doesn't matter what kind of deal you made. You know, We want it back. It, it's for the Iranian people. And he led an uprising um, where he wanted Iran to be a true democracy. He wanted Iran to be totally Western. He also wanted the oil rights. And that ended up coming to blows in 51. Um, it came down to literally one day when no one knew who was going to be in power in Iran, whether it was the Shah or whether it was Mossadegh, and no one knew where either of them were. And at the end of the day, the Shah retained power. Mossadegh ends up going into prison in 1953, lives out his life under house arrest, and that's the last you ever hear of him. So the Shah, emboldened, uh, just continues to do what he does pissing off the religious zealots, taking all of the reserves, putting them in his pocket. That leads you straight to 1979. People have had enough. Ayatollah Khomeini says, I'm going to take power. People rally around him and say, you know what? You're probably better than the other guy. The lesser of two evils. Yeah. Like we've never seen that choice before. And now we have today. All right. So 1979, the Islamic, or the... Yeah. Iranian revolution that ends up forming the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah. Right? Is that the proper name? I know it's the Islamic something of Iran. Yeah. All right. Um, a true theocracy, like where religion and government really are together, commingled. Yeah, they're not hiding it. No, no, not at all. And the... Um, Oh, what are they called? The the religious advisors, the uh, the mullahs. The mullahs. The mullahs probably have more control than anyone else in that country. Yeah, the the parliament, the president, largely just a symbolic figure. So that's Iran. Yeah, that's nineteen seventy nine. Right. Then you get to there, where we come to today. You know, talking about Soleimani being killed is because Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran 
wants to spread their influence. They want that Islamic theocracy throughout not only the Middle East, but the rest of the world. But right now, they're working on the Middle East. Right. And also remember that the Shia of Iran and the Shia of Iraq were the same people for thousands of years. Right. Until 1915 or 16 or whatever it was. Right. And the, <laughs> the Shias in Iraq are totally pro-Iranian. They, they believe they are part of that country. Even though the borderline differs. Yes, even though the arbitrary line in the sand <laughs> separates them. So the sphere of influence of Iran is much bigger than its own borders. Of course. And that was what Soleimani's job was, was to work on that sphere of influence. Yeah, and, to broaden it. And, and broaden it even more. Um, he was had been branded a terrorist uh, 10 years ago or something like that. Um, you and I had to talk about this uh, right after it happened, about the, the assassination of Soleimani, right. as to whether or not that violates the you can't assassinate the head of state. Like, right, that's a slippery slope. It really is. Because like, he's a government person. He's a military guy. He was a terrorist. I don't think anybody will argue that he was not a terrorist. Well, I'll say the word again. I think it goes without saying he was an asshole. Yes. But... But he was officially a general in the Iranian Quds Force? Is that what it's called? Quds. Quds. Yeah. Um, so he really was officially a government official. Right. And his job, his terrorism activities were directly related to that job. He largely had autonomy, but he represented his country. So this is a slippery slope, gray line area as to whether or not we really violated or are we pushing the edge of violating the don't assassinate heads of state rule. I, I don't have the answer to that. I just thought it was an interesting conversation. It was an interesting conversation. It was um, also interesting about the plane crash. That was actually what I was just going to bring up. You had a really, really intriguing theory about the uh, the Iranian airliner that was shot down by Iran. They shot a missile, shot down this plane for a couple of days, said, oh, it was mechanical error, but then eventually said, no, it was a mistake. We did it. Yeah, I think it was on purpose. And I think it stopped a war from happening. Now, I this is the fun part. Explain. Okay. War looked inevitable before that. Iran was required to... Retaliate. To retaliate in some way. And the, the firecrackers thrown at the empty base didn't... Too much. You don't think that would have appeased the people? No. And I, it looked to everyone. It looked to me. It looked to you. It looked to everyone like war was ine inevitable. Well, this airliner gets shot down. It immediately neuters Iran. Everyone knows. I mean, before before they came out and admitted it, everyone guessed as soon as they heard that it was an Iranian missile. And then everyone pretty much convinced themselves that it probably wasn't an Iranian missile. And then they came out and said it was an Iranian missile. And I think that right there stopped any momentum toward war on Iran's part. And I think it was some guy with some button in front of him 
who said, I know, you know, two, three hundred people are going to die doing this, but it's better than two, three million people dying. But you're not getting into the detail that we had before. How would shooting down an airliner stop war? I mean, it's been my experience. You shoot down an airliner, you you start war. But you had this, like, really convoluted, now Iran is, uh, you said the word neutered now, but you, but when you explained it before, you said that now Iran has done something that they have to kind of, they, they, they're forced to take a back seat and not uh, push for aggression because they, they've openly done something wrong. Right. And by, by doing that, by shooting down their own plane over in their own airspace that was taking off from their airstrip, that now they have to... There, there's no way they can go on the, on the offensive after that. Right. There's, there's nothing left for them to do but sit back and say, I'm sorry. Right. And, and the United States has already said, we don't want to go any further. Like, we're, we're not, you know, pursuing aggressions. And right. now Iran is forced to do that because of this so-called mistake. But you don't think it was a mistake. I, I, it's, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I believe, I mean, it, it very well could have been a mistake. It was a fortuitous mistake if, if, it, if it was were. a mistake and not fortuitous for the people and I'd feel bad for them and obviously I'm not saying let's kill people shoot, shoot down more more civilian but, airliners but I believe that that act absolutely defused what looked inevitable at the time and and it wouldn't surprise me if some knowledgeable person who had access to these weapons said this is what we have to do this is what we have to do because it's the, it's better than the alternative. Right. Because Iran knows that the United States could sit in the comfort of a, of an air conditioned room someplace with a cup of coffee. And, the war would be over in fifteen minutes. Right. And they know that. Yeah. They're a big power in their region, but they're not really a huge power on the world stage. So, it's an, a very interesting theory. Like I really like that theory. I'm not saying I agree with it. But I, I see where, where you're coming from. I could see how that... Yeah, I'm not saying I agree with it either. Yeah. We, but it's it's plausible to me. Okay. Okay, so we've had... You know, just starting with Sykes-Pico, we've had a hundred years of the West meddling with the Middle East. And, you know, if you want to count Russia as the East, you've got the East and the West yeah. meddling in the Middle East. And... I, we here in America wonder why that they're over there screaming death to America. I completely understand why they're screaming death to America. Like you said, this is all recent history to them. It's ancient history to us because a hundred years ago we were only a hundred years old. A hundred years ago they were still six thousand years old. Right. <laughs> I don't know that a whole lot of people in the United States have ever stopped to look at it this way. Like I said, when I wrote my article, a lot of people had no idea about Sykes-Pico. And I don't know how many people really understand, you know, Iran-Iraq, while we're openly supporting one side and feeding guns to the other side. And how many times things just like that have happened in the Middle East. I mean, the, um, oh, the 
the the king of Saudi Arabia, the first that made Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia. It's Al-Saud. Al-Saud. I was going to say his name sounded a lot like the country. (laughs) I just can't think of it right now. I mean, he had similar things. Like he came to power, he was selling off mineral rights, making money, and and then had the whole faction thing going on. A lot of these rulers in the Middle East, the the Sauds and the the Shahs, these were largely just propped up. You know, these were puppet regimes, or they were they were rewards for aligning themselves with the West. So they got their little fiefdoms, they got their you know their kingdoms and their little countries that have shitty borders and right. So so you go along with what? Let's just keep picking on the UK. Yeah, you go, you go <laughs> along with what the UK wants. I'd like and... to pick on France. A little more too. Oh, okay, okay. We can pick on France. I don't care. So you go along with what what France wants you to do, and France says, "Okay, you can be king, shah, whatever. You're the ruler of this little country." But then six months, six years, ten years, whatever down the road, when France changes its mind about what it wants from that country, then, well, we don't want him there anymore. So what do we do? We pay his enemies we just we don't, okay we don't ever want to get rid of any of these guys we just want them to not have any power right because if you get rid of them you end up with an unknown you end up with a power vacuum right and power vacuum we've quickly found that power vacuum in the middle east in particular is very bad yeah it 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 almost never works Almost never works. Well, I mean, I think there's a whole lot of us in America that think that we should just get out of the Middle East and close all of our bases and pull all of our troops back. And if the entire... You're one of those people. I am. But you you know that we can't do that. I do know that. Right. I think we should get out, but I'm smart enough to realize that, no, if, if even if the entire Western world said, okay, it's been 100 years of us messing you up, we're done, we're out, we're going to leave, that... It would take 32 and a half seconds before China and Russia were, like, rolling through the sand and taking over. Well, that, I mean, if you believe the Syriana model, where we intentionally created these, you know, these arbitrary borders designed to to create discord within these countries, then we are inextricably linked from that, because we've been doing that for 100 years. We have been screwing up one country and screwing up another country and pitting them against each other and just keeping everything you know pushed down as much as we can how do you just leave that what happens when you just leave that everybody kills each other that's that's (laughs) probably going to happen and someone is going to be left standing and i guarantee you we're not going to like that guy right but who we like in the Middle East changes. I mean, we like Saddam Hussein for 20, 30 years, something sure. like that. He served our purposes. And then we went to war for the purpose of toppling him because he no longer served our purposes and was being a bad man. He was a bad man the whole time, wasn't he? He was a bad man when he got into office. Right. But we supported him for a long part of his, his uh, rulership. At that time, Iran was... Worse. Was going down the tubes. Uh, the Shah was still in power, but he was the, writing, the writing was on the wall. Um, Saddam Hussein was someone who would fight Iran. 
and we were fine with someone fighting Iran. So, so regardless of his human rights atrocities that he personally committed, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, and his enemy is also my friend. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I think the you know, big summary of this is we screwed it up, we being the, you know, everybody not, the in, not in the Middle East. Right, the West has not screwed Not America necessarily. Not, not necessarily the United States, correct. Um, we, I won't say that we haven't had hands in it. Uh, I won't say that we started it, but we have definitely in, been involved. But the West has screwed up the Middle East, and there's absolutely no way that the West can fix it. No. no. The, whatever solution has got to come from the Middle East, but they've had 100 years of constant war. So I don't see a solution coming from them anytime soon either. No. They're... they're... Obviously, I'm half Arabic. I've, you know, I lived in the Middle East when I was a kid. Um, I have emotional ties to, to the region, and I feel like I'm reasonably intelligent and reasonably well informed. And I have no idea how to fix it. none, none whatsoever. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think anybody does. I don't think the smartest people, the best politicians, the diplomat. I don't think anybody has a, a, a solution for it. I I don't think there is one, and I think that the best we can hope from our elected leaders is to just not make it worse and to fix things where you can. I'm sorry, we don't call them leaders on this show. They are elected officials. Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do. All right. Um, unless you've got something important that we've left out, I think we've probably got enough recording. Okay. Sounds good to me. All right. Thank you for stopping by Liberty Lighthouse. Please give the uh, 64 My Rights phone number a call with your questions, comments, and concerns about this episode. Uh, thank you to my friend Jamil for coming by. And this is the Liberty Lighthouse. I am your host, Peter Seraphine. And until next time, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download my free ebook from the file shares page. Don't forget, call 64 My Rights with your questions, comments, and concerns for the show. That's 646-974-4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about the Liberty Lighthouse. Whatever platform you're listening from, subscribe, rate, leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.